School might be out for the summer, but let's study up on what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our series, Christianity 101, from the book of 1 John. Have your Bibles. Um, will you turn with me um, this morning to the book of 1 John, the epistle of 1 John? And um, we began a series of messages here in 1 John. And I was thinking as I was as I was preparing for this week's message and been reading through the book, you know, there's some portions of scripture that are just, I mean, they're just all out inspiration and they give us the charge, right? But um, 1 John is really more of a teaching book as John was looking to speak into the lives of those that he was writing to and he was teaching them. And so we need to receive um, the words that we, we read and that we're going and that we're looking at over these weeks here from his epistle, we need to receive them as teaching, teaching that comes to us really from, from one of the apostles, one of those who first um, saw and was with, was under the teaching of Jesus Christ himself. And so last week, we began looking into this letter, um, John's first epistle, letter to the church. And again, as I mentioned last week, John was writing to second and third generation Christians. These were Christians who had come to the faith, not because they had encountered Jesus physically firsthand for themselves, but they were removed by, by time and, and space, as we saw last week. Um, and so they had come to faith through the testimony and the preaching of others. But these were second and third generation Christians who had had potentially begun to lose their fervor for Christ. They had maybe begun to veer from some of the essential teachings of the apostles and had even begun to compromise in their lifestyles. And so John was writing to them to bring them back to the basics of the Christian faith, the teachings and lifestyle that are basic to what it means to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we said last week, it was like he was teaching a class entitled Christianity 101. And so last week, we looked at John's introduction, the first four verses of chapter one, wherein he begins with really the basic of basics, um, the foundation to everything that he goes on to speak about, and that is the reality of Jesus. That Jesus wasn't just a myth or a fable or a story, but the reality of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we ended with the question last week, have you experienced the reality of Jesus within your own life? You see, for us as believers, that's where it all begins experiencing the reality of Jesus for ourselves as we put our faith in him and give our lives <clears throat> and give our lives to following him. And I just want to say that if you've not yet had that kind of encounter with Jesus, if you haven't yet taken that step of faith to put your faith in him, then that's the first thing you need to do before you go any further in John's epistle, before you take hold of even what we talk about today. But I want to encourage you to experience for yourself the risen Christ within your life to forgive you, to make your life new, um, to give you the hope of eternity. Well, as John continues, right, he goes on to speak about in this section that we're going to read this morning, he goes on to speak about the evidence, though, that ought to be found in the lives of those who claim to have encountered Jesus and follow him. 
After all, even as Pastor Guy preached this past Wednesday, and it was a great message. If you missed it, you need to go back and watch the YouTube video of that. But as Pastor Guy preached this past week, when we've truly experienced the reality of Christ, our lives will be changed. There's a lot of people who say they're followers of Jesus, and yet not too much change has really taken place in their life. And that's kind of what John is talking about here in this next section. So I want you to look with me in 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 5, and we're going to read down into chapter 2. And so John writes, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. For if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter two, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Aren't you glad for that today? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, and yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. For anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they're going because the darkness has blinded them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. And I pray, God, that you would use it to pierce our hearts, to speak to in, in, into our spirits and into our minds and to help us to become and to live as you would have us live, to be all that you would have us to be. And so bless your word to us today. Give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say to us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so this morning's message is entitled, The Claims of the Christian Faith. The Claims of the Christian Faith, or I've subtitled it, Is There Enough Evidence to Prove That You're a Christian? Is There Enough Evidence to Prove That You Are a Christian? You know, we've all seen all kinds of infomercials that make all kinds of claims. You know, you buy the exercise program and you'll be strong and fit. You buy the hair cream and you'll have a great head of hair. You take their pills and you'll lose weight. You'll stop smoking. You'll live a healthier life and so forth. Of course, in, a, in, in an election year like we're in now, politicians will make all kinds of claims. You know, if, if you elect me, I'll lower your taxes. I'll raise your standard of living. I'll get you a job. I'll educate your children. I'll solve all the world's problems. Those of us who've gone through the process of looking for colleges, 
with our with our our children know that that colleges and universities make all kinds of claims oh not only will you get a good education but you'll have research opportunities and internships and externships and a great social life and great dining and the best roommates and lifetime friends and the perfect job and you'll find the perfect husband or wife and you'll live the perfect life but the question is when we hear all these claims we have to ask are their claims true are their claims valid? What are the actual results? Is your hair actually growing back? Some of you know it didn't work. Have you lost weight? Are you stronger? Have your taxes gone down? Has the world been put in order? Did the school actually help you get a job? Are you any smarter? You see, in this next section of his letter, John refers to the claims that people within the church, that his Christians were making in his day, and he puts them to the test. In essence, he was saying, listen, this is what you're saying about your life as a Christian, about your walk with God, about the way you follow Jesus. But let's put it to the test. Let's see whether or not your claims are true and valid. How? By taking a look at how it is you live your life. We as Christians, we make all kinds of claims, and rightfully so. After all, Jesus has done so much for us. Jesus has done so much for you. Maybe you can say amen. And thus, we say, listen, we say, we've come to know God through faith in Christ Jesus. We say that our sins have been forgiven, that we've been saved, that we've been changed. We claim to be followers of Jesus and thus to know the truth and the truth will set us free. But are our claims true? Is there enough evidence to point to the fact that what we say is true, at least within our own lives? You see, John's point in this section is this. What we say as Christians that which we claim to be true about our relationship with God and about who we are as followers of Jesus must be matched by how we live. There must be evidence that our claims are true. There must be consistency between what we say and what we do. We can't be like that parent who says, their children, says to their children, just do as I say, don't do as I do. That's not what God calls us to. And in the end, you see, this is, all very, very basic to what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. For in the end, John is laying out for us the basic marks of a true Christian. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, how does this apply to me? Do I find these marks in my life? Are the claims I make about being a follower of Jesus, are they true within my life? And so I want you to look with me this morning at the four claims that John highlights, claims that the people within the church of his day were making, claims that Christians are still making today, and notice his response to each of them. Claim number one is this, and any follower of Jesus ought to be able to make this claim, we have fellowship with God. We have fellowship with God. And he says this in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, well, if we claim to have fellowship with him that is with God and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. You see, there's that word again. We saw it last week right in John's introduction, that word fellowship, which we saw means to participate together, to be in relationship, to have union and many people, both inside the church and outside the church, claim to have fellowship with God. They say they believe in God. They say they pray. They claim that God is involved in their lives. You know, you talk to people, everyone is spiritual, so they say. 
But John challenges the claim. He says, says, well, let's look for the proof. What's the evidence that you're in fellowship with God? What's the evidence that someone is in fellowship with God? And to answer that question, John uses the metaphor of light versus darkness. In verse 5, he says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. You see, in, in, in the scriptures, and especially in John's writings, light speaks of truth and moral purity. Darkness is the opposite. It's falsehoods. It's a merely human way of thinking, of understanding right from wrong. It's immorality and sin. And John says that there are those who claim to have fellowship with God, and yet they walk in darkness. They claim to have fellowship with God, but their lifestyle speaks against it. They're still walking in darkness because their lives are still based on falsehoods and just merely human ways of thinking. Um, they claim to be in union with God, but they're not living lives that are morally pure. But John goes on to say, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, you see, for John, it was just very simple. The person who was truly united with God was the one who was walking in the light, that is, walking and living according to the truth of God's word and according to his standard of, moral, of, of morality and purity. Oh, every so-called Christian would say and ought to be able to say that they have fellowship with God, that they're in relationship with God. But John would say that the only way to substantiate that, substantiate that claim is by means of the way you live, whether or not you're living in the light. Yes, we want to be able to point back to a time when we, we maybe prayed a prayer, or we came to an altar, even back to our baptism. But, but ultimately, John says, but the way you, you substantiate the claim that you're living your life in union with God is whether you're walking in darkness or light. For one cannot claim to live in fellowship with God and hold on to falsehoods and continue in sinful behaviors and live according to human philosophies. God will not participate in your life or mine. He will not have fellowship with us as long as we continue in darkness, in immoral relationships, in cheating, in, in, in sinful entertainment, in greed, in prejudice, and, and so forth. And you and I can claim to have fellowship with God, but the real test is whether we are living in darkness or light. Claim number two. Claim number two is this, that our sin problem has been taken care of. And every, every follower of Jesus ought to be able to say, my sin problem has been taken care of. But notice what John writes in chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, one of the central themes of the gospel is that Jesus has taken care of our sin problem by means of his death on the cross. For we who are Christians, we claim that through our faith in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, our sin has been forgiven. The account has been made clean. Our sins have been washed away. John writes at the end of verse 7, he writes, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. That's good news for us because we know it's our sin. We saw it last week. It's our sin that separates us from God. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, has taken care of our sin, washed it away, forgiven us, cleansed us. But here's the thing. Some in John's day apparently made claims that went beyond the thought of being forgiven of their sin. Some claimed to be without sin, to have not sin. Some were claiming that well, for them, sin was no longer an issue. 
that once they were saved, once they prayed the prayer, as it were, that sin was completely eradicated from their lives. Others had possibly become so desensitized to, to sin that if and when they did sin, they didn't even realize it. And so they could say, well, I don't really have, I haven't sinned. They simply thought, hey, hey, I'm a Christian, so everything's okay in my life. God's grace will cover it even if I do sin. Well, maybe everything wasn't okay. And then there were those who simply ignored the sin issue, believing that, well, since it's only the spirit that counts for anything in eternity, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. As long as they had Jesus in their heart, everything was okay. But John says that these individuals have a huge sin problem because they've not dealt honestly with their sin. He says that those who make such claims had deceived themselves. They didn't have the truth, and they make God out to be a liar. After all, it's God who pointed out our sin in the first place. It's God who sent his son, Jesus, to die for our sin in the first place. And so John shows us that people who make such claims by virtue of their claims show that there's something wrong, something sinful in their hearts. But notice he goes on, but if we confess our sin, and John says that the only way to really deal with our, our sin problem is to acknowledge our sin, to confess our sin, to deal head on with our sin. Listen, I think John was a realist. For he knew that all of us, though forgiven and saved through faith in Christ, that, that we all still fall into sin. We all still mess up. We all fail. And the solution is not to deny our sin. The solution is not to come up with some theology that glosses over our sin or that just makes us look better or feel better in some way. Nor is the solution to give up or make all kinds of excuses for our sin. You know, like the, the, the comedian said years ago, well, it wasn't me. The devil made me do it. That's just a glossing over. That's just an excuse. The solution is to deal head on with our sin by coming to God through faith in in, in Christ and asking God time and again to forgive us of our sin. And I remember when I was a, a, a child and, you know, my parents, my grandmother and so forth would maybe lead us in prayer. Sunday school teachers would teach us prayers that we ought to say at night. And, and time and again, we were taught, listen, before you go to sleep at night, take time to ask God to forgive you for your sin for that day. Before you go to sleep, I think back, you know what, that's not bad advice because I'm sure somewhere along the way, each and every day, I fail, I sin, I need God's forgiveness again and anew, and so do you. And I'm thankful this morning that because of what Christ has done on the cross, that that forgiveness is always available. See, John tells us the only way to really deal with our sin problem is to be honest enough to confront our sin and confess it. The psalmist said, listen, listen, when I denied my sin, when I, when I tried to make, make believe it wasn't there, it was like my bones were being eaten up. And if we will not confront our sin, sin will linger in our lives and begin to infect every part of who we are. And we end up deceiving ourselves and making God out to be a liar and falling deeper into sin. But if we confess our sin, John writes, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is, the slate is clean and we get to start all over. And it, notice that John isn't writing to unbelievers. He's writing to believers. He's writing to, to Christians. 
Christians, to those who are in the church, to followers of Jesus, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Claim number three is this. And each one of us ought to be able to make this claim as followers of Jesus, that we know God. That we know God. In verse... In chapter 2, verse 4, John writes, whoever says, whoever claims, whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. Listen, as Christians, we claim, and rightfully so, that we've come to know God. After all, listen, Jesus said, if you really know me, you will know my Father. And he even said to his disciples, anyone who's seen me has seen my Father. And thus, we as Christians, we claim to know God, even to know him as our heavenly father. We've gained a knowledge of who God is and what he is like and the character of God by means of our relationship with Jesus. But how does one know whether or not that claim is true? John says again, listen, the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. John is telling the people of the church that there's no way in the world one can actually know God and not live in obedience to his word. And notice how harsh and strong John's language is. It's almost like he gives us, I mean, when I'm reading, I feel like I'm getting a slap in the face. He says, listen, if you say you know God, but you're not living in obedience to God's word, you're a liar. Bam. I don't know how you take it, man. I I think it's tough. But he goes on to say this. He says, we... We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. If anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly complete in him. And this is how we know we're in him. For whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. And so notice how John ties together knowing him and living in him. And that this knowledge of God, you see, is not just a head knowledge. It's not just, oh, I've read through a a book on theology. But rather, John is speaking about an intimate relationship with God, a way that leads to to true fellowship, a true relationship. I know him, and the more time I spend with him, the more I know him. To know him is to live in him. We've spoken about it from John's gospel where Jesus talks about abiding in the vine. And that kind of knowledge is revealed by living the way Jesus did in complete submission to God, to his word, to his will, living as a servant, living a life of compassion and sacrifice and so forth. Oh, church, listen, we can claim to be people who know God and who are in relationship with him. But if we are not living in obedience to God and to his word, John says we're liars. You and I can make all kinds of claims about our relationship with God and our knowledge of him. We can become experts in theology and teach it and preach it. But if we're not living the way God would have us to live, maybe another word we would use today is we're shysters. Right? We're making claims that are not true. For our claims, if we're not living according to God's word, we're not living in obedience to him. John says our claims are not valid. And the fourth claim is this, that we live in the light, that we live in the light. Notice chapter 2, verse 9. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still 
in darkness. And so we're, now we're back to the thought of light. And just as we go on here in John, John's epistle, you're going to find that, 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 that his writing is very circular. We like things very point A, B, C. John keeps on coming back to themes and thoughts. And we're going to come back to, to, to much of what he says here later on. But here he comes back to that thought of light. You see, we as Christians know, again, that God is light, and the light of God has come into our world through God's Son, that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And thus we claim to have experienced the true light. We claim to live in the light. But again, John says this, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. As John is basically saying it's impossible to live in the light of God's truth and purity, to live in the light of Jesus Christ and still have hatred towards another person. John says if you do not love your brother or sister, you're not living in the light, no matter how much religious stuff you do. But he goes on to say, but whoever loves his brother lives in the light. And again, John is going to come back to this point on love later on, but for now his point is this, that it's the test of whether or not someone is living in the light of Christ. It's not, by, it's, it's not how many times a week they go to church. It's not how pious they can sound if they know all the songs, if they raise their hands in worship. It's not how often they fast and pray and all those things. And they're all good. They're, they all should be part of our lives. But he says, listen, the true test comes down to their relationship with others, whether or not they are loving, whether or not they are filled with the love of God, and that love is spilling over to those around them. Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. Again, light represents everything that is true and pure, morally right about God. Darkness represents just the opposite. And how do we know to which we belong? Listen, we all want to say that we're living in the light. But John says, well, if you want to know if you're living in the light or living in darkness, take a look at your relationships. Take a look at whether or not you truly love one another and love those around you. That's not to say faith in Jesus doesn't count for anything or that doctrine is unimportant. As we'll see as we go on in 1 John, we find they're very important. They become the backdrop to all else. But in the end, that which substantiates one's claims that they are a follower of Jesus and thus living in his light is whether or not they are living a life of love. And let me just say, in the context of the days in which we're living, and we know the church has often struggled in this area, but those who call themselves Christians and who say they're living in the light, there cannot be found in their hearts or in their midst, there cannot be found prejudice or racism or anger. It can never be us and them. Because when we're living in the light, the love of God just flows through us. And so, so I know that, that none of this is easy for us, that we all struggle every day in, in, in some of the areas that we've spoken of. And that's why we continually lean upon the grace of God in Christ. And listen, you need to lean upon his grace. I need to lean upon his grace. Each one of us needs to, help, needs to pray for his help and the help of the Holy Spirit. But the thought is this this morning, that those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and then claim that we're in relationship or fellowship with God. We claim that our sins have been forgiven, that our sin problem has been taken care of. We claim to know God and to live in the light. 
And we end up telling those around us, people all around us, those kind of things. We make those kind of claims in both direct and indirect ways. And the fact is that there are people around us who are looking and asking, well, are your claims valid? Are your claims true? Are they substantiated? Is there enough evidence to, to know that your claim is true? And I kind of think God is asking the same questions. He said, he's saying, well, you say you belong to me. You say that you've given your life to, to following my son Jesus, that, that you've been forgiven and, 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 and that you're living in the light. You, you claim to live your life in union with me, but come on, let's take a look. Let's take a look. Are the claims that you're making, are they valid? Are they true? Can they be substantiated? John would tell us, and it's all very, very basic to the gospel message and the life of a Christian, a true Christian, that that person who is really following Jesus, that person whose life has been truly impacted by the reality of Jesus, for one, they live a life of truth and of moral purity. You can't get around it that that person deals with their failings and their sin head on. They don't make excuses for sin. They don't try to cover it over. They don't try to come up with some kind of theology that kind of makes them look better than they are. But they just can you continually go back to God for his grace, for his mercy, for his forgiveness. And they live in obedience to God's word. Yeah, we all mess up. We all fail. That's why we, we confess our sin. But, man, our hearts are set. God, I want to be an obedient servant, an obedient child. I want to live the way you've called me to live. And ultimately, that means living a life of love. Listen, it's not really all that complicated. I told you, this is Christianity 101. It's not all that complicated. And John, he kind of summarizes his thoughts in verses, chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 with these words. And Really, I think he's kind of giving an encouragement to the church um, because, you know, they're hearing this, they're reading this, and they're like, oh, man, I messed up here and I messed up there, and now what do I do? And, you know, and, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to go back and, you know, so forth. But he writes to the church, and notice he talks about children and fathers and young men. And he's not talking about necessarily by age, but about where people are in their spiritual journey. And he says this, he says, I'm writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Aren't you glad for that? Your sins have been forgiven. Take hold of that this morning. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Oh, man, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been living for Jesus for any length of time. Oh, you know the Father. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. Sin is being, sin is being defeated in your life, and even the, the work of the enemy is being defeated. He goes, I'm writing to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Oh, maybe sometime today, go back and read those verses again and let them encourage your heart today. And so the challenge, the challenge for us today is to be Christians, followers of Jesus, not just in name, not just because we said, oh, well, one day I prayed a prayer, or one day I was baptized, or one day I joined that church. 
but to be Christians, followers of Jesus, as evidenced by the way in which we live our lives. To make sure that our lives substantiate, give full evidence to the work of Christ within us. And so the question today is very simple. Does your life give evidence to the fact that you're a follower of Jesus? Does your life back up your claims? Will you bow your heads with me as I lead us in prayer? So, Father, this morning, we thank you for all that you've done for us through the giving of your Son, Jesus Christ. And that we can know as we give our lives to following him with all sincerity of heart and faith that our sins have been forgiven, that we get to enter into a, a relationship with you, a union with you, and we get to know you as our Father. And that even the evil one is able to be defeated. Oh, we can, we can experience the Word of God at work in our lives and the Spirit of God helping us and empowering us. So, Lord, we thank you today for all that you offer to us through the work of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. But I'm praying right now for your people, for each one of us, for each one who may be listening or watching right now, those who may listen or watch later on, that, God, you would show us how it is or where it is. The claims we make as Christians are not being substantiated. Where it is we need to come back to you and say, God, would you help me? And how it is that we might need to confess our sin, that you would come into our lives and in all faithfulness and righteousness come and purify us. And that you would just begin to empower us to live our lives the way you would have us to live them. God, we don't want the world to look at us and say, oh, those people, they say one thing, but they do another. No, we want our lives to back up our words that we might honor and glorify you as our Heavenly Father and honor Jesus as our Savior and honor the work of the Holy Spirit within us. And so I pray right now your blessing upon your people and the ministry of your, of your spirit and your word deep within us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.